Welcome to Tyranny Today, our first episode of uh, 2024, the upcoming Year of the Dragon, but we're not quite there yet. Today we'll look at some personalities that may mark this year, 2024. Who knows, maybe we'll have a chance to look back in 12 months from now to see if any of these men and women really delivered on the goods. So, we are starting with position 10. Number 10, Boris Rhein. 51-year-old minister-president of Hessen, Germany's second richest land. In early October, about 9.4 million people were eligible to vote for the new state legislature in Bavaria, the country's second most populous land, and around 4.3 million in neighboring Hessen, the region that includes Germany's financial capital, Frankfurt. Both states were already led by the country's main opposition Union bloc, which is made up of the CDU, Christian Democratic Union, and the Bavaria-only CSU, Christian Social Union, which led this Catholic region since 1957, with some colorful figures on the way. The older among you may still remember the beguiling, straight-talking Franz Josef Strauss, for example. So, the center-right CDU-CSU opposition won these state elections, which marked halfway for Chancellor Olaf Scholz's relatively unpopular national government. However, what sent shockwaves around Europe was how well the far-right party AfD Alternative für Deutschland fared so far away from its traditional East German base, and say Thuringen, where they compete for the post-communist vote. AfD finished second in both Hessen and Bavaria, and it will be up to people like Boris Rhein to rein their continuing ascent. Why is that? Well, because the three national governing parties, the Social Democrats of the Chancellor, the Environmentalist Greens and the Pro-Business Free Democrats, scored deeply disappointing results. In Hessen, Boris Rhein was challenged both by his deputy from the Green Party and by Social Democrats' candidate, the National Interior Minister, Nancy Faeser. But neither came anywhere near loosening the minister-president's hold on the job. In fact, the CDU was seen winning about 34% of the vote, making gains far ahead of its rivals. Boris Rhein is a name to remember on a day when we get closer to national polls. At least three other CDU politicians are more prominent. The diminutive Amin Lascher, who spectacularly failed to follow in Merkel's footsteps than the head of the opposition, Friedrich Merz, who seems to be overspending his energy on sniping at the government in the Bundestag, and Markus Söder, minister-president of Bavaria, and the man who perennially believes that center-right coalition owes him a nomination. He may have now overstayed his own twinkle. Since his re-election, Boris Rhein has tackled overblown bureaucracy in Hessen, a good dry run for something much more challenging at the federal level, should he ever rise to the top job in Berlin. But if that sounds unexciting to you, here's some beef. Following anti-Semitic excesses by Muslim immigrants in Germany, Boris Rhein called for a test to recognize the existence of Israel as a condition for German citizenship. Rhein showed courage here. There's no muddling through. It's a clear answer to a clear question that he posits. It's just a simple acknowledgement aligned with the foreign policy of the Federal Republic. He knows that Germany is one country that cannot let the slightest crack open for anti-Semitism. But it's also good politics. Either CDU politicians, such as Rhein, speak out in favor of the prevailing policies of the state and subject immigration to the system of values and national interest imperatives that govern these policies, 
or the far right will win this debate among voters who are sick and tired of the multiculti political correctness. Luckily, parties such as AFD are not yet salonsfähig. No other party wants to work with them. Not in Germany, not in the Netherlands, and not in Poland. Position 9. Claudia Scheinbaum Pardo, 61-year-old Mexican politician and environmental engineer. She served as a mayor of Mexico City from 2018 until 2023, and was the first woman and the first Jewish person to hold that role, which is a big success given that Jews represent about 1% of the population of uh, Mexican capital. History of Jews in Mexico is very interesting. The immigration was originally Hispano-Sephardic, but with a strong Ashkenazi imprint after the U.S. tightened immigration rules in 1921. By the way, here in New York City, the oldest Jewish community is also of South American Sephardic stock having arrived here in the middle of the 17th century. To put it in the context for European listeners, this is just a couple of years after the Peace of Westphalia, when Sweden became, for about 100 years, Europe's most powerful state. Claudia Scheinbaum is a descendant of those later Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. Her parents were scientists who participated in the 1968 student movements in Mexico City, which were bloodily squashed by the authoritarian rulers at that time. If you need a bit of a refresher on this tragic story, watch Roma, the 2018 Oscar-winning black-and-white fresco shot with a hyper-realist eye for obsessive detail. And why are we talking about Claudia Scheinbaum? Because she's running for president of Mexico. If she wins, she will become the first ever woman leader of a North American country. Embarrassingly, all of the other continents had female rulers, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, and even Australia, Sorry, I wasn't really Julia Gillard's big fan. Remarkably, we North Americans still suffer from that curious disease of reverse machismo where powerful women politicians have to prove their alpha, valor, first, and their unique feminine power only second. Well, it may be changing now with Claudia Scheinbaum in Mexico, maybe with Nikki Haley here, and that's too early to say, and I don't know about Christia Freeland up in the land of the beaver, although I fully support her pro-Ukrainian stance. Scheinbaum, like Angela Merkel before her, is a scientist, a physicist, and holds a PhD in environmental engineering. She claims that her scientific background helps her look for root causes of various problems. It's a curious marriage of dedicated empiricism with her political leanings. Why is that? Because Scheinbaum has remained very close to the current, haplessly iconoclastic populist president Andrés Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO. When she first entered politics in the year 2000, she served as Secretary of the Environment for Mexico City under AMLO's administration in the capital. She created um, the first line of uh, Metrobus, Mexico City's rapid bus transit system, a solution similar to um, systems such as Transmilenio in Bogota, Metrobus in Buenos Aires, and BRT in Taipei. Scheinbaum joined AMLO's Morena movement, formerly known as Movimiento Regeneración Nacional, in 2014. Four years later, she won the seven-way race for the mayor of the capital, with approximately 50% of the vote. In this role, she focused a lot on infrastructure, including the water system of the subsiding metropolis that sinks apparently by 20 inches a year. Her administration got good marks for the COVID pandemic management as well. And last September, AMLO's Morena movement named Scheinbaum the presidential candidate, and she's leading in the polls. Position 8, another woman, Marion Marchal, the 34-year-old granddaughter of the 95-year-old pug-faced firebrand Jean-Marie Le Pen. 
Marion Marshall, whether in her style, her looks, her poise, could not be more different from her ancestors, a family line that also includes her aunt Marine Le Pen, whom she combats from the side of traditionalist right. For the voters disgusted by Marine Le Pen's corruption, not to mention her Putin's links, Marianne Marshall offers a fresh bouffée d'air frais. Marianne Marshall has had some original ideas in a country threatened by the twin threats of a collapsing education system and creeping Islamization. In short, it's a widely shared sentiment that the French society is on the brink. After the right-wing opposition succeeded in rejecting the government's immigration bill, Marion Marshall has attempted to rally opposition parties and capitalize on that. She has the list of her Reconquête party for the European elections and is now proposing a referendum so that the United Right can impose its own terms on the immigration debate. What she's suggesting is the so-called Shared Initiative Referendum, Referendum d'Initiative Partagée, which is an institutional mechanism that allows citizens to submit a subject of their choice to a referendum. So something like um, Swiss Popular Initiative. Provided, however, that they manage to first secure the support of one-fifth of the members of parliament and then one-tenth of voters. This would mean support of 185 members of the French parliament, senators and deputies, out of a total 925, and one-tenth of the electorate would represent just about uh, 4.8 million voters. So no such initiative has ever reached this second threshold, so no referendum has ever been organized in France using this. I have my doubts about representative democracies voting in referendums, just ask the British voters how they feel about Brexit. Referendums really don't mix very well with representative systems unless such systems are completely overhauled by popular initiatives and referenda, as in the case of Switzerland. But that takes a lot of education, civic responsibility and preparation. It's not a free lunch. However, Marion Marshall believes that this um, referendum d'initiative partagée is the sole lever capable of achieving an acceptable result on immigration. Since the government appears incapable of realizing a law that addresses the urgency of the challenge. In particular, the opposition has been calling for discontinuation by the French authorities of the Franco-Algerian Agreement of December 1968, which created a special status for Algerian nationals in terms of their movement, residence and employment in France including family reunification. Now, Franco-Algerian relations are at a generational low. Russia and Turkey are supporting the government in Algiers, which is inching towards a conflict with the western-leaning Morocco next door. The trouble is, Algeria also sells a lot of gas to a post-Gazprom Europe. But for France, it's about people. Just simply too many Algerian people who vote with their feet. For the referendum to have any chance of succeeding, unity of the right would be essential. Marion Marshall proposed it to Jordan Bardella, the 28-year-old head of Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National, and two other right-wing leaders, Eric Ciotti, who leads Les Républicains, and Nicolas Dupont-Aignan's Debout la France, which means Stand Up France. Marion Marshall suggested creating a tool for achieving this kind of national committee for a referendum on immigration. And by bringing together the atomized right, Marion Marshall intends to create a platform for the union of the right that uh, far-right Jewish journalist Eric Zemmour has sought to embody since the launch of his party two years ago for the previous presidential elections. The problem was that Zemmour's style and his support for Viktor Orban ridiculed him in the eyes of many true conservatives. So let's see what the pulchritudinous Marion Marshall achieves in 2024. Position 7. Valery Zaluzhny. 50-year-old commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. 
As the war in Ukraine reaches the end of its second year, not a trace remains of the former unity among the Ukrainian elite. Since last summer, the fault line has opened between the civilian and military authorities, personified by the most prominent figures of the two elites, President Volodymyr Zelensky and Commander-in-Chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, the stocky, straight-shooting Valery Zaluzhny. General Zaluzhny took up his post in July 2021, at a time when tensions with Russia were already growing, and when Zelensky, a novice, catapulted to his position straight from TV dramas, was seeking to improve his poor standing in the military. Zelensky and his chief of staff, Andrei Yermak, chose Zaluzhny to replace his unpopular predecessor, Ruslan Komchak, who was also in constant conflict with the defense ministry. Zaluzhny was relatively young and had come up through the army ranks of an independent Ukraine, not the USSR. Zaluzhny pressed for the rapid implementation of NATO military standards, and while no mobilization was called by Zelensky in the months prior to the invasion, Zaluzhny did not waste his time. In those remaining months, Saluzhne intensified military cooperation with NATO, and today he commands Europe's strongest army. Whether it's strong enough to beat the combined might of Russia, North Korea, Iran, and China is another matter. Saluzhne gave permission to soldiers fighting in the Donbas combat zone to return fire without seeking authorization from the senior leadership. This speed of engagement led to immediate gains on the battlefield. That change in approach was of critical importance for the Ukrainian armed force, even though Colonel General Oleksandr Sirsky, who can take credit both for the victory in the Battle of Kiev and the subsequent counteroffensive in Kharkiv, was a graduate of Soviet military schools. Zaluzhny also proved to be politically astute. Long before his high-profile interview in The Economist in early November, Zaluzhny established personal contacts with parliamentary and nationalist circles that were long distrustful of Zelensky. Since the all-out war started, Zaluzhny has been Ukraine's celebrated number two. Time magazine included him, along with Zelensky, in its list of the most influential people on the planet, while Politico said that he would enter Ukrainian military lore as a historic figure, maybe with Petro Sahaidachny, who knows. The first open conflict between Zelensky and Zaluzhny emerged in public in July of 2022 when general staff prohibited Ukrainians eligible for military service from changing their place of residence without permission from the military authorities. Zelensky slammed the move as serfdom and ordered the military not to take such steps without his approval. Now that the war reached the stage of attrition, disagreements spilled over to the question of recruitment modalities. Recently, Zelensky presented to the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, a decree aimed at boosting the number of soldiers in the army, and the draft law expands the conditions of men who can be called up and reduces the minimum age of conscripts from 27 to 25. It only applies to men, while women can enlist voluntarily. Zelensky said that the army was seeking to mobilize between 450 and 500,000 new recruits, but stressed that the issue required further debate. However, Zelensky contradicted the president, saying that the figure only represents a general plan that would be covered gradually. Beyond this particular issue, the presidential administration has reasons to fear that any lull in the open kinetic conflict will lead former frontline soldiers to promote one of their own to the helm of the country, and Zaluzhny is the perfect candidate as the opposition's most high-profile card. After nearly two years in the trenches, the eventual involvement of the military in politics is almost inevitable, but while Zaluzhny frequently comments on military topics in public, he skillfully avoids touching on politics. This unity within Ukraine is, of course, water for Moscow's mill, and any rifts are certain to be exploited. In a worrying sign, the security service of Ukraine has opened an investigation into the surrender of southern Ukraine at the beginning of the war, 
with Zaluzhny himself reportedly summoned as a witness. New Defense Minister Rustem Mirov has started to dismiss generals who are close to Zaluzhny and the representative of the ruling party on the Parliamentary Defense Committee, Mariana Bazula, uh, went as far as uh, calling for Zaluzhny's resignation. This is rather unhelpful in times of war. Where does the public opinion stand on that? Well, over 70% of Ukrainians are against yielding any territory to the barbarians in the East, but on the other hand, war fatigue is growing fast in the society, and the delays in supplying aid to Kiev, both from Washington and from Brussels, exacerbate the sense of strain. Ukrainian society is still opposed to holding elections during wartime, elections which were originally scheduled for March, and for now Zelensky still has a majority in parliament and full control of the government. A year ago, Washington could be seen as calling the shots here, and some rumors in D.C. would claim that Zaluzhny would be a preferred partner, should he seize power by democratic means. But with America's support for Ukraine waning, Washington's leverage over Kiev may soon begin to dissipate. Moscow would love nothing more than that, internal destabilization. So Zaluzhny will have to navigate skillfully through this minefield. He certainly knows one or two things about minefields. Position 6, Robert Habeck, the 54-year-old vice-chancellor of Germany. Uh, He is the world's most powerful green politician who very recently had to skip the main environmentalist conclave in Dubai due to, well, more urgent priorities. A novelist, translator and philosopher, and a bilingual Danish speaker, Habeck, originally from West Baltic shores near Kiel, leads Germany's Federal Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action, and he stepped into his role when about half of Germany's 41 million households were heated using natural gas. For years, every month, some 2.5 billion cubic meters of this gas would flow through pipelines from Putin-controlled Gazprom. By September 2022, none did. Instead, Habeck hustled from Norway to Qatar to the U.S. in search of gas cargoes. Two LNG terminals sprung up and traders outbid rivals to attract liquid natural gas carriers away from other destinations in Southeast Asia, much to the displeasure of local consumers there. Habeck's views on nuclear energy, on the other hand, have been more green orthodox as he claims that hydrogen energy will make Germany more competitive than nukes. And Habeck saw his approval ratings soar when he waved through weaponry for Ukraine, saying straight to the camera that German weapons would kill people. This was as close to a serious strategic vision that Germany got since Konrad Adenauer. Germany has a chance of bringing together the political and social cultures of many neighbors, the Dutch and the French to the west, the Swiss and the Austrians to the south, the Czechs and the Poles to the east, and Habeck injects into Germany colors of the country's closest northern neighbor, that is Denmark. The Danes have a term, Feliskeb, which means feeling of community or solidarity generated via a joint pursuit of a meaningful goal. Sociologist Max Weber would see this as zweckrationell, uh, so goal-rational, and more so than the German term for community, which is Gemeinschaft. Germany's energy crisis caused by uh, Russia's war in Ukraine generated some of this community feeling. When Habeck urged consumers to reduce their use of gas, Germans did so by an amazing 12%. So you can learn from Danes. Well done on that. Germany's old economic model of relying on cheap Russian energy, outsourced labor to Czech Republic, Hungary, and Western Poland, and the export market in China, was shattered by the emergence of a red team that combines Moscow's irredentism with China's economic coercion. But no strategy has evolved yet to replace it. Rather, you can argue that the country is clutching at the remnants of the old model, 
hoping that the current economic woes are of cyclical nature. I am not so sure. The entrenched neoliberal political corporate elite argues that the anti-Russian Zeitenwende has been so costly that the industry just can't afford severing links with China now. But for Habeck, as the Green Party boss, it's China's 100 gigawatts of fresh coal power added each year, which undermines the thrust of his domestic priorities. Focusing on what he can change, Habeck contributed to peppering his flat, windy Schleswig-Holsteinland with wind farms. But when further expansion of wind power was implemented earlier this year, it turned out that German roads couldn't handle component towers transported on trucks reminiscent of Australia's long road trains. Except that a stretch from Adelaide to Perth or to Alice Springs is straight as an arrow. Nothing in Germany is once you exit your Autobahn. So instead of singing to the tune of Kraftwerk's Far, Far, Far auf der Autobahn, it was Langsam, Langsam auf der Seitengasse, the side lane. Administrative backlogs caused by a lack of uniform bureaucracy between lender stalled many a project in Germany. Habeck didn't give up. He proposed a law mandating that from 2024 all newly installed heating systems must use a minimum of 65% renewable energy. His reforms promised to cut emissions by 40 to 50 million tons of CO2 equivalent by 2030. And of course, his popularity has clearly dropped. But Habeck is not finished, and he has now successfully turned the Greens from a protest movement to part of the mainstream, with leak liberals and unpopular social democrats united in their rejection of the far right. Habeck might one day continue implementing his vision in the so-called Jamaica coalition with center-right conservatives. Position 5. Alexei Dumin, 51-year-old governor of Tula Oblast, where he has served since 2016. If you wonder where Tula is, it's about two and a half hour drive south of Moscow, to which it is connected via a river system that links Upa River with Oka and Moscow rivers, but also with Volga River system and via Don Volga Canal to the Azov Sea and the Black Sea, from where it's close to those Russian ships that the Ukrainian armed forces sink on a regular basis. Good on them. And if you're not familiar with the riverine Russian culture, I invite you to watch the 1938 Soviet classic Volga Volga, starring the Joseph Stalin's number one singing and dancing star, Lyubov Orlova. Okay, but it should be about Alexei Dumin. He was the leader of uh, special forces of the military intelligence agency in Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea, which gives him an aura of success related to Ukraine. Dumin really came to prominence in 2023 during Yevgeny Prigozhin's aborted mutiny attempt. Apparently, it was Dumin, not Alexander Lukashenko, who successfully negotiated Wagner's exit from its run on Moscow, eventually bringing Lukashenko for a high-profile imprimatur on the deal. Wagner Group's colonnade was moving from M14 highway, going north, and past Voronezh real fast. And once having passed Voronezh, approached Tula, Alexei Dumin's city. There was no organized army resistance as far as Oka River, which is north of Tula. It was there that Rosgvardia and FSB security forces prepared to meet the Wagner mercenaries to prevent their entry into the capital. Dumin knew all the main protagonists of the drama. He previously served as Sergei Shoigu's deputy in the Russian Ministry of Defense. Apparently, relations between Dumin and Shoigu were not great when the two worked together in the ministry. Following the failed coup d'etat last summer, several analysts in Russia believed that Dumin would leverage his crucial role by returning to the Defense Department as its head, thus kicking Shoigu upstairs as the chief of general staff. But Shoigu's subsequent trip to North Korea and inking 
of the alliance with Pyongyang have done a lot to save Putin's old fishing body, and the rumors regarding Dumin evaporated. But this is Russia, and evaporation is not enough. They have to be squashed. Tula region's official press service told Russian newspaper Vyadomosti that Dumin did not even take part in the negotiations between Lukashenko and Prigozhin. There are signs, however, that Dumin had been involved in the past in coordination between the army, the FSB, the GRU, and the Ministry of Internal Affairs during various crises. As such, he may be the youngest among Putin's potential successors that has the trust of the Siloviki. Even though he's still relatively young, Alexei Dumin had come to the public notice much earlier. Between 2000 and 2012, he worked as Putin's bodyguard and claimed that he once saved his boss from a bear. In Dumin's telling, he was at a mountain residence where Putin was sleeping when he was informed about a bear stalking outside the door. The bear and I looked each other into the eyes. The bear backed off a little, and I opened the door and discharged the entire clip of my pistol at his feet. That's from the potential future Tsar. I mean, really? Just last week we saw a bear in Connecticut. Nobody wields a pistol at these animals, unless, of course, you were Putin's gorilla with a chest full of ambition. We may not hear about that bear anymore, but, but we might about this gorilla. Position 4, Nikki Haley, 51-year-old former governor of South Carolina and U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under Trump administration. It's refreshing to see an Indian woman running for the most prominent ticket that conservatives can offer. Uh, she's a flag-bearer for those conservatives who are tired of Trump's embarrassing self-absorption. It is also ironic that the current female resident of the White House is of Indian-Jamaican origin. Indian women are really slowly taking over this country, and I don't mean my neighbor, whose yummy masala cuisine I often have the pleasure to smell, if not necessarily savor. In her public speeches, Nikki Haley avoids the shallow reefs of identity politics, which is the prerogative of the left, usually. She also managed to frame some divisive issues as more commonsensical than politically solvable, like abortion, for example. While she opposes abortion rights, she describes the issue as deeply personal, and talks about it with far more nuance than the most Republican presidential candidates, or than most men will ever be able to. It does not mean that she makes no mistakes. She was recently set up with a question about the civil war and slavery, and her delivery was, uh, well, clumsy. <laughs> but before everyone throws a stone, let me ask you to compare that clumsiness to Trump's mendacity. So let's stay clear-headed about what's at stake here. It's not about 19th century history, which, by the way, everyone should study, including Nikki Haley. When she's at her best, she's quick on her feet, sniping at another Indian GOP rival, Vivek Ramaswamy, whose pro-Putin, pro-Xi Jinping isolationism she aptly ridiculed. So when Ramaswamy took aim at her hawkish views during a televised debate in Miami, calling her a Dick Cheney in three-inch heels, she snapped back with a smile, saying, five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Historically, there were only four major female candidates who sought the Republican presidential nomination, starting with Margaret Chase Smith, a Maine senator, in 1964, then Bob Dole's concert, Elizabeth Dole, who sought the presidency in the year 2000, barely four years after her husband's failed bid, then there was Carly Fiorina, the former chief executive of Hewlett-Packard, who ran in 2016, and before her, there was the Swiss-American Michelle Bachmann, the former Minnesota congresswoman who ran in 2012. Ah, all those Swiss Americans. Michelle Bachmann, Tina Turner. Bachmann, Turner, Overdrive, anybody? Hard Rock fanatics will remember, however, that Bachmann, Turner, Overdrive were Canadian, though. 
Nikki Haley has support from strong anti-Trump Republican backers like the Koch organization or operatives like Karl Rove. Polls show her faring far better in a hypothetical head-to-head contest with President Joe Biden. However, it is not clear what path to the nomination she would have should Trump be allowed to run through the thicket of his legal woes. Republicans benefit this year from changes to the economic landscape, a frustrating topic for Biden, given that the economy has been at full employment throughout 2023 without giving the sitting president any credit for this. Driving on the East Coast, I saw that gasoline prices have fallen at some fuel stations below $3 a gallon, which should also favor the incumbent. But there's something else going on. American parents are sick and tired of losing control over their children's value systems as the leftist-dominated school system hammers a bi-dimensional identity dogma with skin pigmentation first and sexual orientation allegedly defined by its flexibility as an exhaustive list of the defining aspects of the human psyche. So even if I do not entirely share this alarmism, I'm not surprised that suburban moms feel refreshed to see a conservative woman who sounds more commonsensical. Position 3. Chi. A sinister-looking 68-year-old first-ranked secretary of the Secretariat of the Chinese Communist Party, technically number 5 in the Chinese hierarchy. And I'm repeating technically because by all signs, he's one of the top two lieutenants around Chairman Xi. As I mentioned last week, the three, together with He Lifeng, formed the so-called Fujian Gang. Now, you may wonder what kind of imperial anointing part of China Fujian is. Well, the reason I'm going to give you is culinary. I thought of this because the pronunciation of this man's family name, Tsai, which also means food, although the actual Hanzi character has nothing to do with food. Chinese language is simply full of homonyms, so it's not surprising. Okay, so what is it about Fujian and food? Well, the Fujianese cooking style, so-called mean Tsai, sports the single most sophisticated Chinese dish, the so-called Fu Tiaqiang, which includes ingredients such as sea cucumbers, abalone, shark fin, quill eggs, and so on, all fit for an emperor. In fact, Chinese emperors loved bedazzling guests with this mystical dish, whose actual cooking recipe is a secret. So, you can easily imagine Xi Jinping, He Lifeng, and Tsai Qi leaning over a sumptuous dish of Fu Tiaoqiang. By the way, the name of the dish means Buddha jump over a wall. Why is that? Because according to a legend, a traveler equipped with this Fujianese dish stopped on his journey near a monastery and attempted to heat his clay pot with these mysterious ingredients. A Buddhist monk, obviously a vegetarian, smelled the amazing aroma outside and unable to resist, jumped over the wall of the monastery to see what the amazing dish was. Hence the name, Fo Chang, that is Buddha jumped over the wall. Jumps, as there is no past tense in Chinese. By the way, Tsai Chi also worked with Xi Jinping in Zhejiang, currently the fourth wealthiest province in China with over $1.1 trillion of GDP, roughly the size of Turkish economy then. When he moved to Beijing from Zhejiang, Tsai Chi became deputy director of the Office of National Security Commission, which is a ministerial-level post. The commission, part of the party's uh, central committee, was established in 2013 with Xi Jinping as its head. It serves as a central element of Xi Jinping's administration's national security policy. Tsai Chi was later tapped as the party secretary of Beijing, an unusually fast track, as Tsai Chi was not even an alternative member of the Central Committee. He marked his tenure by encouraging non-Huko migrants to return to their rural provinces. In November of 2022, Mr. Tsai Chi quite unexpectedly appeared among the top seven Politburo Standing Committee members. Not much later, he began to accumulate 
other positions, in particular as the head of the Central Security Bureau. But the Chinese public really started to pay attention when Tsai Chi accompanied Xi Jinping on a trip to Moscow. It's on this occasion that Chinese media introduced Tsai Chi's new position as director of the party's general office, a role that serves as Xi Jinping's de facto chief of staff. This was unusual since past directors had usually come from a wider 24-member Politburo, not from the top Magnificent Seven. And what's more, Xi Jinping had never been accompanied by another Politburo Standing Committee member on previous overseas trips. Since then, Tsai Chi travels always with Xi Jinping for high-profile events. He went to Vietnam with Xi Jinping recently as China has tried to woo Hanoi back from Joe Biden's embrace. Probably successfully, the US is still paying the price for Trump's exit from CTPP, the Pacific Trade Partnership, a situation that the Democratic administration has refused to reverse, thus offering precious little to partners in Southeast Asia where China's economic heft weighs heavily. So what does Tai Chi do as the chief of staff? Well, he's the Cerberus, in control of access to the top leader. It's similar to the position of a chief cabinet secretary in Japan. So any order from Xi Jinping is passed through Tai Chi. We'll see if 2024 will be his year. Just last month, rumors have surfaced that he's no longer responsible for Xi Jinping's safety and that he had to give up some of his power to a friend of Xi Jinping's singing wife. As you may know, following some upheavals this year, the chairman now only travels by train domestically, not by plane. So who knows? Position 2. Mohammed bin Salman al Saud, 38-year-old crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He's the son of Salman bin Abdulaziz al Saud, but he's also a grandson of Abdulaziz bin Abdul Rahman al Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia. In other words, this 38-year-old ruler has a grandfather who was born barely four years after the Franco-Prussian War, or a decade after the American Civil War, if you wish. I never tire of admiring old Saudi rulers' latter-day virility. But Saudi Arabia has a problem. With the U.S. peripherally engaged in the region only as Israel's ultimate protector, with Russia keen on America's exit from the region but incapable of extending its influence durably beyond non-oil producers such as Syria, and with China preferring the theater of high-life diplomacy over real diplomatic work in the region's shifting sands, with all this, Saudi Arabia has to contend with the much stronger Turkey and resurgent Iran in an uneasy system of the balance of power. The trouble for the Saudis is that with Iran fast-tracking uranium enrichment to 60% and potentially 90%, any semblance of this balance of power will be pulverized unless the Saudis and the Turks acquire nuclear capacity as well. Riyadh also understands the importance of soft power, which Tehran does not have beyond its immediate zone of Shiite influence. In terms of his image, MBS has certainly benefited from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but feels like he needs to do more. The Saudi government has spent heavily on influence operations and brand management, investing, for example, in soccer washing or in inbound tourism and entertainment. Riyadh has apparently used the U.S. messaging apps to burnish the future king's image, while imposing draconian sentences on influencers who use social media to post any criticism of the crown prince. Qatar's Al Jazeera TV station remains a perennial thorn for the silky, thin-skinned grandsons of ultimate privilege. More ominously, Riyadh is losing its cool with the UAE, United Arab Emirates. After Angola's recent acrimonious exit from OPEC, the Emirates could be next. The Saudi ruler even accused the president of United Arab Emirates, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, of stabbing us in the back. This spat could really see OPEC unravel, 
But this doesn't constitute an obvious opening for Washington, given that UAE, which is closer to Israel than Riyadh is, has again greenlighted a Chinese port on its shores, with obvious geostrategic dilemmas that it presents for the US. Saudi Arabia is also losing to Iran and Yemen. Technically, there is no reason for the US to spend its expensive air defense projectiles to down Iranian Shahed drones over the Red Sea. Each Shahed costs about $39,000, while each rocket destined to take them down is at least a million dollar worth. It's a poor deal for the US Navy, given the Red Sea is predominantly an avenue for Chinese experts to Europe. The US has no bone in this at all, unless we view it as a life-shooting practice. If Iranians want to use the Houthis to block Christmas or Epiphany traffic on that body of water, then let the famed Chinese Navy from Djibouti deal with this challenge. Except that China won't. It always plays on the cheap. Clearly, Mohammed bin Salman will have to juggle quite a lot of balls in the air. And now the winner, position one, is Donald T. But no, not that Donald T. This is Donald Tusk. It's actually spelled Tusk, but Poles pronounce it Tusk. Uh, you may have encountered this name when he was Henri Michel's predecessor in the EU Council, where he was installed by Angela Merkel, who shared with Tusk his Pomeranian roots, a region on the shores of the Baltic, where for centuries three cultures met and often mixed, German, Polish, and Kashubian. When uh, Tusk got the job in Brussels, he was bilingual, Polish-German, but his English was not up to the snuff, so he apparently decamped to Malta, to iron out his Shakespearean, which reminds me of an old joke, when an illegal immigrant from Poland lands in London and is interviewed by the border control officer. Why are you coming to Britain? asks the officer. I'm here to Polish my English, answers the nervous construction worker. And the officer retorts, well, I can hear that your English is quite Polish. Ha ha ha. What, you thought Brits don't have Polish jokes? Anyway, so Tusk or Tusk or Tusk or whatever. I will not focus here on the country's internal politics and the mammoth task to clean it up after nearly a decade of institutional damage wreaked by a corrupt clique that sullied conservatism's good name with run-of-the-mill populist pandering while also undermining Warsaw's position in Brussels. And that's from Europe's strongest economy in a potential bulwark against the barbarians that are pressing from the east. I'm not sure what Tusk's Sorry, Tusk's plan is, strategically, but here are a couple of important challenges that he will have to deal with internationally. President Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, once opined that um, one way to face the recurrent threat of eastern barbarians is by Paris, Berlin, and Warsaw to create a strong European axis. Such a grouping was eventually created in 1991, but later atrophied under the previous government in Warsaw. Today, given the multiple disagreements between France and Germany, it may be difficult to resurrect this triumvirate into something more constructive. The advantage here is that Tusk has historically had a Hanseatic view of political and economic integration. He's less tainted with instinctive anti-Germanism that plagues much of the Polish elite. Whatever the outcome, this east-west axis will have to be, imperatively, completed by a creation of a north-south axis. Here, Tusk's Poland must create a very strong network of bilateral alliances stretching from Finland, Sweden, and the Baltics in the north to Czech Republic and Romania in the south, eventually incorporating Ukraine during the tactical pause that sooner or later will intervene in Russia's war. In particular, interoperability with Sweden and Finland will be critical when Russia intensifies its hybrid attacks on Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. 
Quite how Polish armed forces get involved in defending the Baltics is still unclear, but reading Russian military analysts, they believe that Polish army will enter the theater through Kaliningrad Oblast. Since Moscow stations its nuclear forces there, according to Russia's military doctrine, a threat to its nuclear arsenal triggers a nuclear response. So Donald Tusk and his commanders may seek other options to save the Baltics. The key to stability is really Belarus. Russia is apparently in the process of deploying, or at least preparing to deploy, nuclear forces in Belarus. The relations between the EU and Minsk have deteriorated markedly since Lukashenko cracked down on the opposition in the 2020 election, but the subsequent ostracism pushed the Belarusian dictator into Moscow's arms. Russia is planning to annex Belarus, most likely around 2030. Western pivot to Lukashenko would thus open a back door for Minsk, but it would require a lot of finesse by Polish and Baltic intelligence network in Belarus. Failure to do so will leave Poland with a much longer border with the Russian barbarians. Meanwhile, Ukraine would be de jure and not just de facto surrounded by enemy forces. Remember that Kiev has maintained communication lines with Minsk and keeps military levers as well due to the presence of Belarusian volunteers who fight for our freedom and yours. This is a much stronger position than Poland's. Tusk will also have to repair relations with Kiev, which have deteriorated in recent months. At the beginning of the war, Warsaw was heavily involved in supporting Ukraine, not only housing millions of refugees, but also providing hundreds of heavy military equipment at a time where the rest of the Western alliance was still dithering. But these stockpiles have now been depleted, and Kiev is banking on stronger alliance partners in Berlin and elsewhere. In addition, both sides mismanaged the swell of economic problems, including grain transit, and the fact that the primary sector of Ukrainian economy will obviously compete with higher-cost sectors of its neighbors, not least Poland's and Romania's. But this is not unsolvable, and the change of guard in Warsaw offers an opportunity for some of that infantile snapping on both sides to be toned down in favor of their common strategic interests. Looking further west, Donald Tusk's electoral victory was hailed with relief in Brussels, but Warsaw is immediately facing the challenge of EU's centralization drive that is being drafted by German and Belgian lawyers. The idea is to transform certain areas of decision-making from consensus-based to majority-based. This could facilitate Ukraine's integration and bypass Hungary's veto on many issues. But Poland, as a non-Eurozone member, would by definition fall into the periphery of such a new EU unless it's capable to build a strong minority bloc to overcome Berlin and Paris club whenever its raison d'etat is not served by some key decisions. So it's going to be a bit of a tightrope dance for pro-Brussels Tusk. Immediate foreign policy and security decisions by Brussels may align with Warsaw's, but there is no guarantee that it will always be like this, especially if a more rhetorically glib clique assumes power in Moscow, for example, resurrecting the ideal of our common European home from Lisbon to Vladivostok. Poles do not need that frosty Siberian wind to blow at them from the West. Finally, the relations with the US are of critical importance, but the timing for Tusk is tricky. He can't align himself too strongly with the current administration, giving the electoral odds in America. Poland will also have to pursue a stronger policy of leveraging its geostrategic position, if not with the persistence of Israel, for which Warsaw lacks political currency in Washington, then at least with the sobriety of South Korea, which occasionally reminds its American allies that non-proliferation treaty, NPT, is only as good as ironclad guarantees and not some Budapest memorandum. A certain measure of strategic autonomy, meaning capacity to control escalatory ladder in any conflict with Russia would free Poland from the shackles that have constrained Ukrainian warfighting capacity. And Poland is in a better position than Ukraine 
for three reasons. First, Ukraine is still fighting, giving Warsaw time to prepare for the war. Secondly, Poland is a much wealthier country. The size of its economy is now comparable to Taiwan's or Switzerland's. Third, Belarus is still not part of Russia. But the urge to act is real, and acquisition of long-range missiles as well as very capable air defense systems are absolute priorities for Poland. And let's face it, next to Turkey, the Saudis and South Koreans, Poles are lined up in the shortlist for the post-NPT multilateral world that Moscow and Beijing are dreaming about. We can remind these bullies, be careful what you wish for. As we move towards multipolarity, the NPT will one day be pulverized, and with that, the value of nuclear oligopoly that the bullies have enjoyed thus far. So Tusk is facing epochal changes. If he does not want his country to be vassalized by Russia by the end of this decade, he may need to play all of these cards right. His success will keep Europe safe. Thank you for listening. Let's meet again next week.